Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Catherine Richardson. She's the leader of the Sustainability Science Center at the University of Copenhagen, where she's also professor of biological oceanography. In addition, she's one of the 15 members of the expert panel appointed by the UN Secretary General to report on the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda. Before I started the season, I'd been thinking about doing a series on the environment, and uh, I wasn't really quite sure how I would do it. I couldn't quite wrap my head around how to approach the subject beyond simply sounding alarmist and saying, climate change is real. So I'm not particularly optimistic, and I'm truly skeptical that we will avoid a planetary apocalypse. When I started digging deeper into what's still possible, I was really surprised, in a good way, to find the variety and depth of experts and activists that we'll be featuring in the coming weeks. This interview with Dr. Richardson is a perfect starter episode to help us frame how we should think about the Earth as a system and what that means for the sustainability of humankind on this planet. We need to transform our society. And that means we have to envision a scenario, a picture of what does the world look like when resources are dealt out in such a way that nine and a half or 10 billion people can live on these resources and then work backwards for how we get there. We'll be talking about the practical long-term needs for nutrition and energy for billions of people, finding solutions within our finite resources, and that we're approaching a societal tipping point of behavior change to ensure that humanity will indeed prevail on Earth. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Let's start with the UN's 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda. What is it? Actually, it's a fantastic document that's important people know something about because we've had pictures of the Earth from space since the 1960s where we can clearly see that our resources are limited to what we have here on this planet. So when we've used them, we're not going to get any more. But we haven't actually had an international agreement where we accept and acknowledge that this is a challenge that we're working with. And that means that the agenda of how we're going to share the Earth's resources among 9 to 10 billion people is hugely important for all of us. What are the main goals of the agenda? There's kind of a hierarchy of goals that are all about improving well-being for humanity. It has to do with poverty, availability of food, health, education, access to water and sanitation. And then we have some other goals at the other end that are about ensuring that we still have the natural resources to develop, and that's things like climate and, and biodiversity. Those kinds of goals are set up against each other. So well-being comes at the expense of the global environment. And all of the data that we collected showed that the global environment goals not only are we not going to make them, but they're going in the wrong direction. And that tells us that it's very important that we release the pressure between development and use of the environment. What that really means is that we have to use our global resources as if they were money. None of us would use more money than absolutely necessary to buy a good or a service, but all of us use more resources than are necessary to have the lifestyle we have. The other goals that we have 
actually describe tools that we have to be able to help us relieve the pressure. For example, one of the goals is clean energy for everyone. We still have nearly a billion people on this planet that don't have access to electricity. Obviously, we have to get electricity to them. But if we give them traditional sources of electricity, i.e. those that come from fossil fuels, we'll never be able to meet the Paris Agreement. So we have this tool, clean energy, to help us relieve the pressure on the environment part of climate. This is really the first time I've heard this paradigm that we have limited resources and we need to use resources the way that we use money. Conceptually, that's great. But I think in reality, people don't know how to translate living with finite resources as money as opposed to living with money. What's a good analogy you can give us the way that we can think about it every day? Well, our ancestors understood that we get rich using the Earth's resources. So they bought and sold from each other by bringing precious stones or fire or food. And then we got much wiser and we use money. But remember, money actually had a gold standard behind it for a very long time. So money, in fact, is just a proxy for what makes us rich, which is the Earth's resources. So if we think about a bank account, you and I might have the same amount of money in the bank, but we would use it differently. And we all have to prioritize how we use the Earth's resources. For me, I live in Denmark, my family's American, it's important for me to fly. On the other hand, I don't need any new furniture. We got furniture when we got married 36 years ago, and it was given to us by others. So I don't make demands on the Earth's resources for new furniture. I make demands on the Earth's resources for flying back and forth between the United States and Europe. So... I kind of want to go back to what you said earlier, that there is a hierarchy of goals. What is at the top of the hierarchy? Well, I think we have to say what's at the very center is improving human well-being. That's what they're all about. There's nothing new on that list of challenges that we have in the agenda. We knew that we had a problem with climate and biodiversity and water and hunger and, and all of these things long before 2015. And in fact, for most of these issues, we already had a UN agreement. So what's really interesting about the Sustainable Development Goals is that all of these challenges are brought into one framework. And when you do that, it's not the goals themselves, but the interactions between them that really become interesting. What we're realizing now is it's really about interactions between those different things that we're describing. For example, who would have thought that your gut flora would be so important for your mental health and your immune system as we now realize they are today? It's the same way when we start looking at the goals. Sustainable development isn't about getting a certain percentage of the goals right or achieving a certain percentage of the goals. It's about finding the sweet spot where you maximize well-being and at the same time minimize the negative effects of what you're doing. I guess a good example really is to think about the global food system. And when I say system, it's not just about the production of food, which would be agriculture and fisheries and that sort of thing, but also about the way we use it, what we choose to eat, how much of it we actually eat. It actually turns out there's about 30% of the food that we produce that 
never gets eaten. It gets thrown away. That's a huge waste of the Earth's resources. Our food system really doesn't work very well for us. About 1.5 billion people are suffering from malnutrition. That's getting better. We're getting fewer and fewer who are starving. But we've got a huge obesity epidemic in the entire world. People are getting too much and the wrong food. And then you look at the environmental impacts that our food system has. Almost 40% of the ice-free area on land is used for agriculture. And most of that is used to produce meat or food to give to the cows or to the animals that we're producing for meat. 40% of the world is agriculture and an area that's the size of North and South America combined is being used for producing animals. That's huge. If we're going to feed two to three billion people more, we simply can't upscale the food system as we know it today. If we did, it would mean we would increase the greenhouse gas emissions by about 90%. So we need to rethink our food system. We may be able to produce meat differently, maybe in the laboratory, maybe in multi-storied stall buildings that use less area or buildings that can collect up the gases and the manure that comes out of the animals and use them as an energy source in biogas. We need to rethink how we can produce enough nutritional food for 9 to 10 billion without completely destroying our environment. Wow. Well, those numbers are uh, really shocking. 90%. Sorry, my jaw just dropped when you said that. I have a question about some of the examples that you mentioned, and that is the role of innovation. It sounds like people are thinking about ways to do this differently. Is innovation going to save us here, or do we just have to change the way that we live or potentially do both? Technological development is going to be a very big help, but it can't solve this problem because what technological innovation can't do is it cannot relieve that ultimate limitation we have by the limitation on our resources. Technology can't make energy. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Technology can't make biodiversity. It can't make phosphorus, which is necessary for helping plants to grow in, in agriculture. So technology can't solve this problem, but it's a very, very valuable tool when we want to use our resources more efficiently. So yes, we need to go really work hard on getting technological innovation that can maximize the the well-being gains that we make out of using the environment. But one thing we point out in our report is that technology needs to be used together with three other really important tools. One of them is how we deal with our financial and our economic systems. Right now, they maximize money. We don't pay enough for what we use of the Earth's resources. We have to get a price for use of the Earth's resources into our financial dealings in order to be able to stimulate the fact that we need to use them as efficiently as possible. Another tool we need to use is governance. And when I say governance, people go in panic and say, but we do not want a global government. Of course we don't. But we do have a global market, and we manage to manage that. We should be able to manage our global resources as well. 
even without a global government, but it does give a role to companies, it gives a role to individual people, and of course it gives a role to politicians. And the final tool we have at our disposal is actually individual and collective behavior. That should never be underestimated. We talk often about tipping points in the natural world, tipping points being where if all the ice melts on Greenland, that will actually cause climate change to become much worse. But there are also tipping points in social systems. Think how quickly smoking became from being socially very acceptable to completely not acceptable, or drunk driving, or using seat belts in cars. People can change, and you know, I believe that we see tremendous change going on at the moment, at least in Europe with the developed countries eating very much less meat, partly as a climate consideration, but certainly also as a health consideration. Many of us eat too much meat. That doesn't mean there won't be a market for meat in 2050, but what it does mean is the market for meat will be only for meat which is produced with the smallest environmental footprint. So that's where we need to be looking at the moment. Well, that's very hopeful to talk about how much humans can change behavior and also how much of an impact that has. Of course, when we think about the climate crisis, that's exactly what happened is that our behavior has warmed the planet. But so one of the things that you said here is that we would eat less meat. What are two things that an everyday person could be doing right now to move the needle to make sustainability of the planet more likely? I believe what's really important is that we begin to acknowledge that it's not money that makes us rich, it's resources. So we need to think about our resource use and walking where it isn't necessary to use the car. We can talk about using water. We can talk about using electricity. I know people who, when they see a piece of clothing that they really want, they look at it, they try it on, they decide they really want it, and they go home and sleep on it. And if they really want it, they go back again and get it the next day. But it's amazing how much that has helped them to reduce buying clothes that they don't actually use. Oh, I like that. That's good advice. So I want to talk about your role as the leader of the Sustainability Science Center, which is meant to serve as a one-stop shop platform for climate science. What is sustainability science? Sustainability science takes on the hard questions of not describing a problem, but trying to find the solutions to a problem. How can we make the pressures between the human well-being increase and the loss of environmental natural capital or the money in the bank, if you will, how can we, how can we conserve that money in the bank and still have a gain for humanity? So what have you discovered by working with the Sustainability Science Center that you did not expect? Some very surprising things have come out where we put economists together with, with people who are specialists in biodiversity and are in the process of developing mechanisms for making a green national economy for the country of Denmark. So we're, we're getting some very practical tools that come out of applying sustainability science. We need to transform our society. If we are going to feed 10 billion people or we're going to give them all energy. Right now we have 
almost a billion people without electricity. We are going to have to plan how we're going to do that so as not to lose all of our resources. And that means we have to envision a scenario, a picture of what does the world look like when resources are dealt out in such a way that nine and a half or 10 billion people can live on these resources and then work backwards for how we get there. That's a different kind of way of of doing science than we've been doing before. Yeah, I like that approach. That's very interesting, backing it in. So in your mind, what does the ideal world look like? Well, the ideal world in my mind is one where there is less inequality, that things are more evenly distributed. If we focus in on the food system, in the ideal world, we're not throwing away nearly as much as we are today. We are producing much more locally in developing countries. We are producing in a much more environmentally friendly way by doing something called agroecology, which is where you try and grow organisms using nature's tricks. If you put different organisms together, and sometimes you put trees and plants together, that attracts a different mixture of insects, for example, that can do some natural pesticide combat, which doesn't mean you don't have to use pesticides. I'm not talking about forbidding them, but it does mean that you use much less and put much less into the open environment. So we're producing more locally. We have security nets, as it were, forms of insurance and loans to to some of these people in developing countries who are are doing small-scale farming. We have a terrible problem in many countries in terms of transporting in warm countries. Very much of it rots before it even gets out and gets used. But there are some fantastic digital solutions coming online. There's a wonderful example in Nigeria called Cold Hubs, where you have containers where they've got solar power, so they're cooled down, and farmers can pay as they use them. So they pay for having their food in it for as long as it's there. And you have digital banking solutions that are making some things possible that we never would have imagined. So I see a fantastic world for us in the middle of this century, but we have to work very hard to get it. Well, I hope you're right. At the same time, you actually just co-authored a paper last year called Earth System Trajectories in the Anthropocene that generated quite a lot of media coverage because it warned of a hothouse Earth scenario. It's very, very interesting that you take that paper on board because the media bought it as being a a doomsday scenario. But in fact, there are two things described in that paper. One, we run a very serious risk that even if we reduce our emissions to a point where we think that the earth should only be two degrees warmer, there are biological processes as well as tipping points that could very well cause the Earth to warm much more than two degrees. But a just as important part of that paper was saying, but we believe that there are social tipping points and that if we can manifest these social tipping points that change our governance, our economic systems, our behavior and technology, that humanity will be able to artificially maintain the temperature of the earth at about two degrees warmer than the pre-industrial. And we really do believe that if we can constrain the temperature increase to that kind of a level, then humanity would be able to adapt. But if the earth gets to be four to five degrees centigrade warmer, then 
the chances are that humanity or society as we know it will not be able to adapt because you will have large areas of the earth which will simply be too warm for humans to live. So we don't want to go there to the four or five degrees. The two degrees, that's doable. And that was what the paper was all about, that we have to actively manage to keep it at two degrees. Okay, so it's at this point highly likely we will not be able to keep it at two degrees or less. And so what is the active management part? Is it possible that there is a reaction that once it hits over two degrees that you don't expect and it just accelerates? Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, there's there's the risk that it could happen before two degrees. This is the tricky part here. Nobody knows exactly when tipping points kick in. The higher the temperature becomes, the greater the risk we're taking. We're taking a huge risk already at this point. When we get to two degrees, might be fine. We might already have gone. When we get to two and a half, we won't be fine. There will be more effects in terms of storms and so on. That was one of the interesting things that came out with the IPCC report this year, the one about between 1.5 and 2 degrees, which basically said, look, this makes a difference. The effects that we're going to see at 2 degrees are much greater than the ones that we'll see at 1.5 degrees, and the effects that we'll see at 2.5 are much greater than the ones that we'll see at 2. So the higher the temperature, the greater the risk that we're going to run into one of these tipping points, which will really turn the system upside down and make it much, much much warmer. No matter what, the higher the temperature, the more effects that we're going to be seeing of climate change. Actually, I'm very pessimistic about this, I have to say, although you are so upbeat, it's really refreshing. So I'm wondering, what is the source of your passion? I just think we're living in what is probably the most exciting time ever in human history. I think we're in the process of changing our understanding of our relationship with the rest of the world. I believe that when our ancestors stopped wandering around to catch their food and started living at a fixed address, that they let their waste fall wherever it was produced and they took whatever they thought they needed from nature. And then they realized that they were getting sick from polluted water from their own waste products and they were running out of game and things to burn to get energy. So they realized that they had to manage their relationship with the local environment. We realized that we also have to manage our relationship with the regional environment. If we want clean air or water in any given state in the United States, then we can't let the neighboring states throw all of their rubbish into the air or water. And right now, we're in the process of recognizing that we're in the same situation globally. It's this question of throwing waste we thought was leaving, but it's not leaving. This whole question of plastic in the ocean, we've been throwing plastic out since the 1950s, knowing full well that it was basically non-degradable. And then in the late 60s, we got pictures from the Apollo mission that showed that the Earth is two-thirds ocean and there's no pipe leading away from the Earth. Of course plastic's in the ocean. Where did we think it was going? This isn't rocket science. But we weren't thinking that way about our relationship with the rest of the planet. We're doing that now. And I see companies, I see politicians, and I see people on the street all changing their understanding of this so quickly that I can't help but have hope. I never would have dreamed two or three years ago of the momentum that there is today. I understand your pessimism. I honestly believe we're standing with our backs against the wall and a knife to our throats. 
But I work best under pressure, and I assume that the rest of humanity does as well. I really believe in this. I have children, and now I also have a grandchild, and I just, I refuse to believe that there isn't a future for them. Yeah, here, here. Well, one of the things you mentioned just now is the way that we're changing behavior and that we are cognizant of the fact that there is no pipe leading off of planet Earth to throw our garbage away. In fact, you're a big proponent of thinking about the planet from a systems perspective. How does it affect the way that we think about mitigating global warming if we think about the planet as a system? Well, in the first place, it makes you realize that just thinking about what's coming out of smokestacks and changing our energy system isn't going to be enough. Climate is about the waste that we're putting into the atmosphere. And we're not worrying too much in climate about the waste that we're putting onto land and into the ocean. But it's all part and parcel of the same problem. If we think about it as a system, we have to go back to the tension, the tension there is between human well-being and what we buy it with, the the natural resources. So you touched on this briefly earlier, but I'd love to get your final answer around this. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful I'm living in a a small country, and I have to say small countries often spend a lot of time whipping themselves with a wet noodle about the fact that they're not a big country and they can't do everything like big countries like the United States. But in times of change and when it's important to make a transformation, I think actually living in a small country is an advantage because it's clearly easier to turn a small ship than a huge super tanker. And many times I think if you look at what's happening in smaller countries, it does give you kind of a picture of what might happen in the future. And here in Denmark now, we have the academic community, the political community, the industrial community, the business community, all saying the same thing, that this is something we have to do. This transformation is the only winner agenda. And if we want our company, our country, our people to thrive in the middle of this century, we have to change what we're doing. The sustainable development goals are a purchase order from the future, and we all have a responsibility to deliver on that order. And seeing that happen around me gives me hope that it can happen on a much larger scale as well. That's terrific. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. This conversation really reframed my thinking about the relationship between the Earth's resources and climate change. I hadn't ever fully considered that human well-being, although this is obvious, comes at the expense of our environment or that our planet is a system with finite resources that we're rapidly depleting through our consumption. Although I'm only mildly less pessimistic than I was before, I do agree with Dr. Richardson that we're indeed living in an exciting time in humanity. What I found most hopeful was when she said that only two or three years ago, she would not have thought that we were close to actually doing something to avert the climate crisis. And yet now, we're clearly approaching a tipping point in our society for behavior change. Or maybe we're already there. What with Greta Thunberg mobilizing millions of young people, or the visibility and strength of the Sunrise Movement, and even in the seeming end of plastic straws in our daily lives. Still, I wonder 
when we'll fully accept that climate is about the waste that we put into our very own atmosphere, and that it is the world's resources, and not money, that make us rich. Next week, our guest is Bill McKibben. He's a founder of the environmental organization 350.org and was among the early advocates for action on global warming. We discuss his latest book, Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? We'll be talking about how dire the situation already is, that saving the environment is actually deeply conservative, and that there are practical ways for us to reduce our individual carbon footprint. And finally, he reminds us that we must join others to change the political and economic ground rules for polluters. We're now in the early and dangerous stages of climate change. You've seen the droughts that have driven a million refugees to the U.S. southern border. That's been enough to discombobulate our politics. Now, instead of a million, contemplate the fact that the U.N. thinks we could have a billion climate refugees in the course of this century. That's why we've got to slow this down. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. Mm-hmm.